Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And of course, we can rip up the script with Brian uh, Levitt of Oppenheimer Funds. I mean, CFA 101, rates start going up and every CFO says to the CEO, let's get going. I mean, that's what happens. Right. So rates are going up. But you also have companies with a lot of access to cash, given the new changes in the tax policy, given a, well said. a prolonged well said. period of economic activity. So businesses are utilizing that cash. I think the bigger question for investors when you think about it from a broad investment strategy is whether or not this leads to new higher sustained levels of growth in the United States. Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical. So while you might see some steepening in the yield curve and a rotation, as we've seen a little bit to the more value-oriented stocks. I don't think that that's going to be prolonged. I think ultimately the U.S. will slow within this environment and um, we'll go back to the environment of flatter yield curve, more growth-oriented names outperforming. Well, Brian, if you believe that that's the case, where should you put your money? Should you be looking to Europe, for example? I mean, European stocks have been languishing the last couple of months. I suppose it depends on a time horizon. I mean, we probably have a last leg of U.S. strength in here and U.S. dollar support in here. You know, ultimately, if you're looking over a five to seven year time period, you should consider that U.S. equity returns are likely to be more modest than they are outside of the United States. And I know a lot of investors, after a prolonged period of U.S. outperformance, are going to have a hard time reasoning what that. What qualifies as modest? Because we got the S&P up nine and a half percent this year. Yeah, it's been a prolonged period of, of U.S. U.S. I mean, that's not bad, right? I mean, nine no. and a half, ten percent. No, you no, no. I mean, I think year, you're a hero. I think yeah, I think U.S. equities over the next five to seven years probably return something more like five percent rather than the eight percent average that investors have expected. You're likely to do better outside yeah. the United States simply given where valuations are and where growth is likely to take place. I, I, I think this is to me, folks, one of the arch decisions of Q4. And, and into 2019. And I understand, you know, the international, it's a different feel. But Brian, we've all got to admit how humbling it's been that the single digit crowd has been so wrong, 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 wrong for pushing 10 years. We're only going to grow five or 6%. Maybe we'll get some, you know, Well, as long as people have that kind of it's a great view, can't you be a contrarian and trade against that? Yeah. Well, you could. I mean, we we've uh, we've been of the mind that this is the longest. This was going to be the longest cycle on record. Investors need to own equities, um, and we were not of the view that this was going to be a prolonged period of modest returns in the United States. I mean, this is a secular bull market that started at very low valuations and a zero interest rate. Where you are now, where valuations are higher, I don't think they're excessive. This is not 1999, but valuations are higher, and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. So it's a different part of the cycle. And you might, again, get some last leg of U.S. strength in here. But I'm talking more looking out over the next five, seven years. Think about what happened in the late 90s. The, the U.S. yield curve was flattening. You got another great period of, of, of um, U.S. equity returns. Ultimately, you had a recession. And in the years like 03, 04, 05, 06, 07, emerging markets outperform the United States considerably. So is that where you want to go right now? I mean, you want to look for things that people on that the, the crowd is not interested in buying. So move out of U.S. equities, take your profits, pay your taxes and find something better. 
again, I think we're going to have a last leg of dollar strength. What we what we would favor is what's going to continue to be in our mind growth in a slow growth world. So people viewing this as a new you know, higher sustained growth in the United States, and that's going to persist forever. It's not. So, so what kind of stocks, what kind of companies or industries? I mean, I would favor, I would continue to favor technology and discretionary in the United States and outside of the United States. It's a, it's a growth story as well. I mean, what we're looking at is, you know, particularly in places like China, which has been unloved recently, you're looking at 400 million millennials that are that are wow, shopping. That's stunning. It's stunning. Million. I mean, that's bigger than the labor. An America of millennials just in China. Yeah, it's bigger than the labor force of the U.S., Canada, and Europe combined. So, how do you buy a bear market? If we say Shanghai's cratered, Shanghai Tech is cratered. How, when do you know to buy, or do you just? With your time frame of five to seven year hold, that solves a lot of problems. Right. I think too often investors are trying to time these things. We need to make sure that we... We can't do this by October 1st. <laughs> we need to make sure we've got our policy statements right. We yeah. know why we do what we do. And if we're looking for yeah. long-term growth as investors, a lot of that's okay. going to be in emerging markets. What do you do on Europe? I mean, there's all the focus on Europe and, of course, this overarching theme of immigration and migration. But how does Oppenheimer Funds find opportunity, particularly in Eastern Europe? That's very different than an Asia analysis. Right. I mean, the big story in Europe is is going to be a lot of the, you know, a lot of the brand names that we all love. Um, so it's going to be a more of a company specific story than a broad macro story. Yeah, we had some synchronized growth in um, in 2017. That's more of an abnormality than the norm. And that a lot of that was based on Chinese stimulus. So we shouldn't expect um, significant economic growth out of Europe because of the demographic issues, because of the some of the structural issues in the periphery. But it really Really comes down more to brands and luxury and those okay. are the big so European. what are we talking about lvmh i mean do you want to be buying lvmh because of those 400 million millennials yeah, in you china do. you want to maybe michael kors you heard the news today <laughs> michael kors buying yeah. versace i mean that $2 is a, that is a big yeah. growth story um in the yeah. world is that citizens in the emerging markets are are starting right. to wear wealth like we do in the united states did you see how, how, how michael barr walked into the studio different than the michael barr we all know mm. <laughs> did you did I you know had something to do with a football did game you, and i know brian pays a lot of attention oh you saw my chest all puffed out you were just yes. like you were just looking like you know the, the the distant days. I would have played a theme song. How but, much you know, money did you make on this game? You bet like your middle child, right? <laughs> you know, tell people. Come no, on, I, I, the tell Detroit. The Detroit Lions the Detroit defeated beat Tom Brady. That's all that matters. That's it. Wait, the New York Giants won a game, and we're talking That's about right. the Detroit Lions. Well, exactly. Hey, 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 hey! hey. <laughs> Do you see how he wears Detroit Lions blue? I, I like mean, it. Not only is it blue, but it's the correct Thanksgiving Day blue. It's <laughs> the only shirt Bar wears. I got my red and blue tie. You know, Michael Barr had like 40 of, those she 40 of these shirts worn just to give the Detroit Lions feel. How did they do this so wise one? Well, we're look, secondary for the Patriots, they're not all that great. So Be careful now. Good morning, 1061. I, I know. Boston. Listen, I, and I <clears> love you guys out in Boston. But like I said, I'm, I'm a native Detroiter. And so. I guess Matt Patricia knows a little bit about yes, right. the New England Patriots. I, I, that's, that's where right. I was heading is this coaching advantage had to be tangible. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, wow. Well, we like the the kid that found a ten dollar bill on the curb, and it's now a later for everybody. And then so later on, you know, we'll 
We'll come back to Earth. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> like, like next week. Well, Michael Barley, as we celebrate, we say good morning, 1061 FM Boston and 991 FM Washington. Good morning, 960 The Bay Area. Pim, we got to go back to gridlock. This is the week where I get cut and chiseled. Oh, I walk it's okay. everywhere. Don't worry about it. You're tall. I, well, that's You're true. But, but You'll go through. Come on. Just say hi to the I policeman. I came down. There. You know, the Sikorsky was down because of the clouds oh, and the I rain. See. And I took the car down Fifth Avenue, and you just stop at 60th Street. They won't let you by. So a little walking never hurt anybody. I had to walk three blocks oh, to work. Oh, my goodness. It That'll was wear out the shoe leather on those loafers. No. Right, you want to talk Giants football? That's why you haven't talked in the last 45 seconds. <laughs> Giants football. I do want to talk Giants football. I mean, okay. I work downtown, so the gridlock, I can't add much to the conversation. Brian Levitt, thank you so much for not and I am friends. Coming up, one hour on the New York football Giants. Right now, Rufus Yurksa joins us uh, with the National Foreign Trade Council uh, messaging, of course, on trade and all. Uh, Rufus, wonderful to have you with us. How fragile is our trade right now? Well, obviously, we're in a, a period where we're, we're having significant fights with a number of countries. Uh, the biggest one now, of course, is U.S.-China fight. Uh, but, you know, concerning that we've also had uh, restrictions imposed on a number of other countries in sectors like steel and aluminum. Talk about doing it on tariffs. Retaliation by those countries. For the time being, uh, we've had retaliation on about $250 billion of U.S. exports, uh, increases on imports, in- increased tariffs on imports. Of course, in a $19 trillion economy, you know, that's not major macroeconomic effect. Economy is still strong. But long term, there's a lot of concern about how this will impact uh, our international trade relations, U.S. raising tariffs while a number of other yeah. countries are making deals. What's different this time around, perhaps, is the idea of uh, intermediate processes, of all the back and forth between nations. Is it, I think it's identified that the president and his team is simplistic about a true bilateral trade debate, which involves many different nations and many different back and forth of a given product. Within your National Foreign Trade Council, do you see that uh, constituent to a constituent, that they're all dealing with these complex processes versus the president's simple message? Yeah, I think that's the biggest concern. You've hit your, you, you've hit the mark very well there because, you know, if you have global rules and they're strong and they reflect U.S. kind of market-based principles, which obviously we're concerned about China not meeting those standards, but if you can strengthen the international rules multilaterally, then business knows what the rules are. They can plan their global supply chains. You know, it helps both our exports and the costs of our imports. But if those rules start to break down and you start having a lot of bilateral tit-for-tat fights and bilateral agreements, the rules become murkier. It's a more mercantilist environment for companies to operate in. They're not certain where to move their supply chains to. Uh, and that becomes you know, kind of a longer-term uncertainty that undermines their, their, uh, their competitiveness and their cost structure. Rufus, you were previously Deputy Director General of the World Trade Organization, also U.S. Ambassador to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Do you feel that those various bodies were effective in dealing with what many countries have said 
is unfair trade practices by China. And I'm not just talking about pricing. I'm talking about things like intellectual property theft. Yeah, I think there's a consensus that, you know, the rules have not been as effective as we had hoped they would be on China. I don't think they're totally ineffective. I mean, China has reformed in a number of areas since the 1990s, for example. But recently, under Xi Jinping, there's obviously been more of a trend towards a harder-edged uh, economic nationalist approach. Things like forced technology transfer, uh, like you say, still very big problems in the intellectual property realm. Concern that even the Chinese state is involved in helping companies with theft of trade secrets and things like that. So clearly, we're not satisfied with how the rules are working. But the question becomes, how do we best get China to begin to abide well, by those? <clears throat> Rufus, the president has just started speaking at the United Nations with Secretary uh, Ambassador Haley, rather, and Secretary of State Pompeo, and Mr. Bolton sitting next to them. What should he say to the U.N. about trade? Well, hopefully, from our point of view, he would say we want to work with a number of countries in strengthening rules and disciplines and do it in a way that's convincing enough that we gain the support of Japan, of Europe, of other Asian countries uh, in pressing China to play more within the rule book of, of sort of you know, market principles. But I'm fearful that it's going in the other direction, that he's starting a bilateral fight with China at the same time that we're fighting with the Europeans over automobiles in Canada and Mexico. We're not building the global coalition. Mr. Yerksa, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate that uh, this morning. Rufus Yerksa, the National Foreign Trade Council. If you move north from Pretoria, and we begin really our coverage here of United Nations Week, across South Africa and into Botswana, and Pim, I, I said this earlier to the minister, I've never known anyone who's gone to Botswana that was just not absolutely blown away by the beauty of the country, the wildlife. I mean, it, Kalahari it, Desert. Yeah. I mean, I'm waiting for someone to give me a negative vibe on Botswana. It hasn't happened. And also since 1966, after its independence from Britain, has mm. been a uh, well-run, electoral-based democracy yeah and there it is and about two and a half two and a quarter million people someone messaging the botswana word is baholo kenawendo uh she is a botswana minister of investment trade uh in industry and joins us from new york where she is here for the week what do you hope to uh, accomplish minister as you come to uh in new york what do you want to accomplish for your botswana thank you very much and a very good morning to both of you uh, we are um, here to share the Botswana story. We are uh, having a, a lot of bilateral meetings, uh, but most importantly, we want to ensure that by the time we leave New York, uh, we have left Botswana in people's minds and in people's tongues, that you're talking about it and are aware of our story and that uh, that those that would like to come in and invest in Botswana because it is a fantastic investment uh, destination and an even more uh, fantastic tourism destination. I know that, uh, and I hope that no one will ever give a negative review about the visit to Botswana. I'm wondering, Minister, if you could just share a little bit of your background so people can understand your perspective. Uh, you are the youngest minister ever in Botswana's yes. cabinet. Congratulations. 
Thank you very much. I uh, I am the youngest minister in Botswana's cabinet, and uh, I joined parliament uh, two years ago, and uh, I have been given this responsibility of head in the Ministry of Investment, Trade and Industry. And I am from one of the uh, most remote areas in Botswana, but very much uh, a very beautiful part of Botswana along the Botswana River. And uh, I pride myself with uh, my heritage and uh, having been a diamond baby, and in that time, I mean, you know, I was born in a government hospital, went to government school, uh, was sent to university by the government, and I think I'm very much uh, the Bozana Diamond story. Can you tell people a little bit about the economy of uh, Botswana and how it has changed over your 31 years and the competition that exists, not just in natural resources, but in the banking industry and how that has helped the economy of Botswana? Right. Uh, well, about 30 years or 31 years ago, Botswana was heavily dependent uh, on uh, our agricultural base. Uh, it used to contribute well over 50% of our very small GDP. Uh, but uh, there was a, a rev up in the economy uh, when uh, diamond uh, um, uh, revenues started increasing. And uh, then we became heavily dependent on our diamonds. We produce, and I'd like to say, uh, the world's best diamonds. Um, and we have since uh, managed to diversify to some extent into financial services. And the banking industry has really driven uh, a very good growth in the economy. And we are seeing uh, investment in good productive uh, sectors uh, that we are hoping will continue to increase the wealth uh, in Botswana and uplift the, the lives of Botswana. But most importantly, um, the opportunities remain vast. And we are aiming at increasing our uh, GDP growth from 4% to 8% so that we can see that transition uh, from a middle-income country to a high-income country by 2036. Can I interrupt the show to just the standout effort you did, which you were uh, uh, single-handedly, you-got-it-done minister, uh, Kenawendo, that the Duchess of Sussex is on her left hand, a Botswana diamond? Is it true that yes. Princess Meghan has a Botswana diamond on her left hand? She 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 does have a Botswana diamond on her left hand, and we are very proud of that. And we're very proud that we have played uh, uh, a part in that love story, uh, in that they it said that they fell in love in Botswana. And most importantly, in Buteti, where I'm from. So I, I feel very proud yeah. uh, to, to have contributed yeah, to that I, love story. I, I saw you at the wedding. I understand that. But seriously, this is Kimberly Process Certification, and it's yes. about conflict-free diamonds. How does Botswana yes. do that? It's a conflict-free diamonds. And what we keep saying is uh, peace is so much, uh, very much an e- economic issue. And uh, when... Uh, you are able to keep increasing the piece of cake and the pressures on that national cake are not that strong, uh, then you have stability. And uh, uh, that stability comes from good governance and being able to provide equitable distribution uh, of our resources. And uh, over the years, we've managed to reinvest the rents that we are getting from our diamonds so that they're very much people-centered and they are not blood diamonds. And like I said earlier, I am a, a Botswana diamond. I'm sorry, and so many other uh, Bazana share that history uh, with me.
Now, just to note that democratic self-government in Botswana was established uh, in the uh, mid-60s, and it has continued. What would you say to business leaders that may want to participate in the growing tourism industry in Botswana? What kind of incentives and what kind of government support is there for foreign investment? Well, we, you're right to say uh, we've had in uh, democracy since 1966, and we are proud to say that uh, we have the longest-running stable democracy uh, in the continent and uh, an open economy uh, without any exchange controls, and we have a lot of incentives, including uh, corporate tax at 5% uh, for uh, some industries and 10% for others. And uh, we have land banks, particularly in my ministry, uh, to facilitate investors that come in uh, to ensure that they are able to set up. And we also have an office, a one-stop shop, uh, that uh, mm-hmm. uh, facilitates from uh, registering all the way to markets. And we uh, consider ourselves a very well-centered uh, economy that is land-linked to the no. rest uh, of uh, the region. And we are able to facilitate trade uh, to countries like Zambia, Zimbabwe, Angola, Namibia, uh, that mm-hmm. are our neighbors. And we, we, we see to it uh, that all um, foreign investors that come in as a government, we roll uh, out that red carpet. Minister, thank you so much. Uh, as we look at the United Nations uh, Week in the Bloomberg Forum, Botswana's uh, Minister of Investment, Trade and Industry, Bahola Kenawendo, uh, joins us uh, this morning. turned what is completely and totally in entirety consumed the beltway and that is the kavanaugh hearings plural that will be moving forward and rather than the politics and all that we talk about the long-term damage or i guess assistance to be fair of the supreme court there's no one better to do that with than greg store of bloomberg a student and reporter of all Supreme Court. Greg, is there any damage that will come out of this to this most important American institution? Oh, absolutely, Tom. Uh, and that's really no matter how this comes up, comes out. Uh, the court has tried to, uh, over the decades, keep itself out of politics. It has been harder and harder to do that as court appointments have become more political. This nomination of Brett Kavanaugh was already intensely political beforehand. Uh, now you have this specter of, of the sexual assault allegations uh, against him. If he is confirmed, it will be probably with entirely Republican votes, uh, and there will be, uh, opponents will say, a a big cloud over him. If he is not uh, confirmed, we're going to have a whole other fight uh, coming up soon. Does it go into, let's say he is confirmed, does it go into the operations of the Supreme Court? Does this whole debate infect the choosing of cases, the debate of cases, the outcome of cases? It, it, it could, but a lot of that depends on something we don't know, which is what effect is this having on Brett Kavanaugh if he is confirmed? Um, you know, per, 
personally. We, we've seen with uh, some of the other justices, Clarence Thomas certainly, uh, Justice Sam Alito as well, who had somewhat difficult confirmation fights, that they've gone on the court and they have really dug in uh, as, as you know, they were always going to be conservative justices, but, but uh, uh, you know, it's possible they are, are even more conservative now. It could happen to Brett Kavanaugh, too, if he is confirmed. We, we don't really know. Now, one other possibility is that some of the other justices, like Chief Justice John Roberts, may say that at least for the time being, we need to try to not get ourselves in the middle of controversy, yeah. take fewer really controversial cases so that we can kind of lay low a little bit um, and, and get ourselves out of the political spotlight. Greg Store talking about the political spotlight. Can you give us an update on what Senator Dianne Feinstein notified the FBI about and how this plays into the ongoing hearings? Uh, the uh, you know Pim, I may, I may not have the the very latest information on that. Um, she she has called for an FBI investigation uh, of these new allegations that were published in the New Yorker last night. The um, uh, you know Democrats had been you know saying throughout that they want an FBI investigation uh, of of the earlier allegations involving uh, Christine Ford. Uh, the Republicans have resisted, and at this point, there is no indication that there will be an FBI investigation. Would there be an investigation just generally? I mean, for anybody that is coming up as a potential nominee, wouldn't there be some kind of background check and so on? There is always a background check, but as a general matter, the FBI is gathering information uh, for the, 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 the White House, and it's uh, not something where the FBI is investigating as they would in a, a criminal case where they are determining whether there is probable cause to determine whether you know, something happened, whether a crime was committed. They're, they would be gathering facts, and they will do that. They have done that on Brett, with Brett Kavanaugh on many issues, and they will do that on, on any future nominee, uh, but they're not, they're not equipped or they're not prepared in, in a situation like this to you know, sort of get to the bottom of us and tell, get to the bottom of it and tell us all what, what the, the correct answer is. Is there any way that this makes or creates even more bad blood between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, or is it just so bad to begin with that nothing's going to change it? It's hard to imagine it could be even worse. And, 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 you know, with these new allegations, Senator Grassley, the Republican chairman, was, uh, you know, is, is accusing Democrats of withholding information. Uh, the New Yorker report indicates that uh, some Democratic staff members were aware of the allegations, and, and Grassley says, we didn't know about these. Uh, so th- there, there is certainly mistrust, and it may well uh, explode if, in, if indeed we do have the hearing that currently is scheduled for for Thursday of this week. If Kavanaugh steps aside in some form, how does that change the process for the president in nomination? So, you know, the president, of course, we get to nominate somebody new. The, the, the kind of the wild card in here or the two wild cards together are that we have the midterm election coming up. Uh, 
it seems impossible that somebody could get confirmed before the midterm election, which means we move into the, the, the lame duck Senate period and Republicans would still have a majority no matter what happens in November. Uh, it is at least theoretically possible that, uh, especially if Republicans uh, you know, maintain or enlarge their majority in the Senate, that we could have to push this into next year and the, the new Senate that starts uh, in early January. All right. So if that's part of the of the plan, don't they need to actually vote on a variety of other measures? And I know that's outside of your wheelhouse, really, but they need to get the government funded. They do need to get the government government funded. Uh, you know that is still on the table. Um, there are plenty of other issues out there. I mean, Kavanaugh is the Kavanaugh issue is attempting to suck all the air out of the room. But but you're correct that there's some uh, you know traditional business that needs to be needs to be done. Yeah. And, you so know, the Senate, like, the, it's like there's a lot more that they can disagree on and, and mess up. Yes, abs- absolutely. We, I mean, the, the, the prospect of a government shutdown yeah. is is hanging out there, um, and uh, you know there are right. a lot of senators who would like to leave well, town and go campaign as well. Let's move one theme forward before we let you go, Greg. Noah Feldman, Professor Feldman of Harvard, has a terse essay out: "Rosenstein must go, so Mueller can stay." It's a gamble, but it's at least the least bad option for continuing the Trump investigation. Do you just presume as Supreme Court guy that the Supreme Court gets involved as they did with Nixon slash Watergate and all this Rosenstein sessions, Trump festivities? I, I don't presume it is. Certainly, you know, there's some issues out there, like if Mueller decides to subpoena the president, that is an unresolved legal issue that could get up to the Supreme Court. In terms of, you know, just say that the question of can Robert Mueller be fired, I'm not sure that that is a Supreme Court I- I- issue. This is not a, a case like, um, you know, Ken Starr, who was an independent counsel. It's it's clear that Robert Mueller could be fired uh, through the proper channels, um, and that would be a huge political controversy. But it wouldn't necessarily be uh, something that would rise to the supreme the, the level of the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a good chance something will get to the Supreme Court involving the Mueller investigation, uh, but 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 very hard to to say that it's imminent or or to say what it is. Greg Sir, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Of course, uh, on edge of legendary in Supreme Court balance and coverage. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.